Welcome to CruxCast. Whether you're in your car, at work, or at home, we hope you enjoy this interview. And if you do, you can find more like it on cruxinvestor.com. So please subscribe. Today we speak to Paul Atherley of uh, Pensana Rare Earths. They're an Angola-focused uh, business. They have received some money recently from the so Angolan Sovereign Wealth Fund. They've also signed up with a Chinese partner, which gives them access to cheap Chinese money. It's a relatively low capex project, a uh, relatively large um, asset itself. Uh, we talk through their ability to solve the problem technically, uh, how they get into market, how far downstream they go, and just generally what their model is uh, in relation to other competitors in the marketplace. So enjoy the podcast. Paul Atherley, how are you doing, sir? Very good, Matt. How are you? Not bad. Not bad. I'm, I'm holed up. I've got a bit of a Bit of a back pain from uh, too much exercise because I was bored. Um, I don't have any back pain. I'm worried about how you got your back pain in the lockdown, but we won't go there. Um, I'm extremely well. I've managed to hit a few tennis balls in this nice weather, oh, and um, but but very busy. Good lad. Good. Swimming is the answer, by the way. Um, <laughs> so now, now, now we've established that. Um, why don't you kick off? Give us that one minute overview of the business, and then we'll pick it up from there. Pensana Rare Earths recently listed on the main board of the London Stock Exchange. We are uh, looking to develop um, the first major rare earth mine in over a decade. And this is the time when the metals that will be the supply chain for are in increasing demand. This is the metals for magnets um, in electric vehicles and for wind turbines, particularly offshore wind turbines. So we think we're bringing on the, a really important mine, first one in 12 years, just as this massive demand is kicking in. Okay, fantastic. Okay, Rare Earths. We spoke to a few um, companies recently, um, different types of Rare Earths, obviously. Now, you have made a big story over the fact that China controls 87%, yes, 87% of the production of uh, neodymium, preodymium. Um, you're in Angola. There's an opportunity to break free and then you go and get a Chinese partner. Talk me through it. Yes, um, that's right. Well, we were never looking to break three, free. Um, a number of reasons. One is uh, China's put $20 billion into Angola and built the infrastructure. So they built this Benguela railway line at $2 billion and the port of Lubito, which means our capital cost is uh, very low. We've got a capital cost of $200 million for our mine rather than four or $500 million. So, so that's the first thing. We've benefited from Chinese um, infrastructure spend. and. But more fundamentally than that, the only uh, processing capacity for a rare earth outside Linus Corporation in Malaysia is actually in China. So it doesn't matter where you mine your rare earths, um, they're going to go to China. And China produces, as you've mentioned, nearly 90% of the world's magnets. So if you're an auto manufacturer or a offshore wind turbine manufacturer, you're going to get your magnets from China. So we're just part of the supply chain. And part of that supply chain is processing capacity, magnet production in China. True, but there are European ecosystems, American ecosystems being built today, um, which will need some of these rare earths, especially around the battery component. You took this EV revolution. Well, everyone's talking about this EV revolution. Um, did you have conversations with any Europeans or Americans, or was it just so much easier to take cheap Chinese money, or at least have the option of taking cheap Chinese money? Um, we're not exclusive to China. We, we, we think our dominant market will be China because of that. But we are also been talking to the Japanese, the Koreans and the Germans. Um, there is no processing capacity of any size in 
outside Europe or Japan or Korea or China. Um, there is plans for processing capacity in the United States, and we would supply to that when that emerges. So even though we are, as you say, likely to be Chinese funded, that doesn't make us totally wedded to China. It just, just happens to be that's where the market is today. It is. And I think there's a competitive tension which needs to uh, be explored. Um, and I'm sure you will, because I, I thought it was interesting that although you have got an EPCF, as you call it, with um, a Chinese group to give you the optionality to go and talk to Chinese banks, you are not exclusive, you've said. So explain the relationship with your new Chinese partner. It's a really good question because normally there's this association with an EPC, um, F, or that's a funding and engineering. Normally everybody says that comes with offtake. In other words, you get the money and the financing in exchange for the offtake. This is not the case in this, this circumstance. Well, the, the main reason why China Great Wall, a China Great Wall Industries Corporation has come to us is because they are one of the major Chinese contractors in Angola spending that $20 billion. They've been involved three major projects in Angola and they basically come to us and say, look, we're a Chinese contractor in Angola. This is our business. Can we build you a mine for you? Um, and we said, yes, we'll bring the um, specialist processing engineering capacity to you. That's the Wood Group in, in uh, Perth in Western Australia. And we're about to make an announcement regarding some um, accelerated project management. So basically, we brought the process engineering to them. They bring Chinese uh, engineering um, in Angola, existing infrastructure and Chinese SOE financing, which is obviously a completely different tenor to the kind of financing a junior company that you're very familiar with would have think about how it would um, fund a mind of this kind. So two big wins, one existing Chinese contractor in Angola, which deals with all the Angola issues. And then secondly, is we're looking at SOE style financing for, um, uh, for our mine. From China? From China. So when you say it's not, ex not necessarily exclusive, what did you mean by that? I mean that we've not announced any offtake arrangements yet. We don't have any offtake arrangements. So the announcement we made the other day said that we will, we've entered into a heads of agreement with China Great Wall. They will look at doing an EPC and F, that is they'll do the engineering procurement construction and, and with others do the management. And alongside that, they will help us procure the finance. And we've indicated in the announcement the finance will be commercial banks in China plus Sinoshore, and Sinoshore is China's export finance guarantee agency, a bit like our uh, UK export finance and the Austrians and the Germans and the Japanese all have the same thing. So we're bringing all that together. It's all at the heads of agreement stage, and then we'll, we'll hopefully over the next six months bring that together and uh, finalize it into a complete engineering financing package. Should the rest of the market be nervous? Because, it, you know, I, the amount of times I've heard CEOs, companies, even countries, presidents and otherwise, say to me, we don't want Chinese money, they've got too much control in China. And then they take Chinese money. Because it's the cheapest, quickest route to getting what they want. Well, I don't know about these other CEOs because I hear what they say. Tom. I lived and worked in China for 10 years. I was uh, chairman of the uh, British Chamber of Commerce there. I, uh, I was vice chairman of the China Britain Business Council. And as far as I'm concerned, China's part of the global 
supply chain for many of these uh, uh, goods that we use. I'm sure your Porsche parked in the garage out there, well, if you look through that, even the German car is full of Chinese manufactured um, uh, items. So we're, we're part of a global supply chain. So this sort of Trumpian rhetoric, which suddenly we're going to create a trade war between the biggest, fastest emerging major economy, we're suddenly going to shut ourselves off and we're all going to, I don't know, build our own iPhones or something. It's, it's, I think it's nonsense. And I think, you know, if you want to talk to China more generally, um, I think the best way to deal with China is to engage fully with China um, at all levels and to, if we don't like what's going on in Xinjiang, which we shouldn't, we should, as partners, say to them, we want to do business with you. We want to be, uh, you to be part of the global, uh, the global uh, economy, but we're also going to challenge you on human rights and, the, and other matters. And I think you can be a lot more effective if you engage with China than if you retreat behind some form of uh, nominal trade wall or get out a megaphone and start shouting at each other. Okay. The Angolan Sovereign Wealth Fund has also invested in you recently. Is this a standard issue from them? Is it any, any, any large or potentially large business they put money into or what are they hoping to get out of it? I, th- I think you're being slightly, slightly ungenerous, uh, Matt. I, I think you've sat in front of so many junior companies who've failed to get funding. And here and I, I'm, I'm delivering to you sovereign wealth funding, you know, not even at BFS stage yet, and the Chinese SOE funding. So yes, we think we've done a really good job. Um, the the uh, Angolan Sovereign Wealth Fund has done what it says on the tin. It's a sovereign wealth fund, and it's investing in a company that's following government policy. So the government policy in Angola, this new young government, is doing everything right, trying to attract foreign investment. It's diversifying away from oil and gas and diamonds into um, mining, tourism, and agriculture. We're the first cab off the rank of the major of a, a major mining project and they've they've backed their own policy by taking their sovereign wealth fund and put two equity tranches into uh into the company uh, so to accelerate the project so i think the sovereign wealth fund is doing um exactly what it should be doing it's investing in angola in line with government policy which is in line with the aspirations of the democratically uh elected government that is meeting the the you know, the fundamental aspirations of this amazing young population, the average age of the Angolan population is 17 years old. They're bright, well-educated, aspirational, the same as anybody else. They want jobs, they want training and jobs. So the Sovereign Wealth Fund investing in us, and we invest, are investing in Angola, is meeting the aspirations of those young Angolans. Okay, and do you think that future institutional investors would have a problem with Angolan Sovereign Wealth Fund being invested. Because there are some sort of legacy issues around the you know, Dos Santos family and how certain projects have been run. Um, or do you think that that has been cleaned up now? Almost uh, absolutely cleaned up. I mean, there's huge credit to the um, fund. It's uh, clearly dropped all the relationships, historical relationships. And I can tell you that the uh, um, uh, in London, the, uh, um, I forget which authority it is, but part of the, the City of London um, Regulatory Authority, they've actually returned funds to Angola, which were, which were we shouldn't have been in London and gone back to the government and the sovereign wealth fund. So 
very much a case of, and there's been very good work done by Baroness Northover from UK Export Finance, Minister for Africa, Minister for Trade, the UK government's focusing on Angola as one of the favoured destinations in Africa. And part of this is to remove controls um, uh, over investment into um, getting money in and out of the country. And part of that is this transparency on, uh, on how uh, Angolan institutions conduct their business. And um, I have to say, every dealing we've had with the Angolan government, both the, the, the Sovereign Wealth Fund and all the regulatory departments has been completely transparent and very, very high quality. So we're very, very impressed. And, uh, they, you know, I, I, I have uh, on my team, uh, we, we've recently closed our office in Australia and we're, we're, we're moving everything now to, to Africa. And we've got young, young you know, talented um, African management team. And they, they get quite angry when they see it as a form of arrogance when they get lectured from London and places on Dos Santos regime or the history of Angola. They say, hey, give this new government a break. They got elected in 2017. The first things they did was arrest people from the previous regime, put them on charges of corruption. They've chased the money down, brought it back, and they've been delivering on everything they've said to this young electorate. So the 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 the, the, the uh, request from Angola is, give us a break. You know, just just have a look at what we're doing and judge us on what we do not what happened in the previous regime. Okay, and the reason I ask is because you're talking about a product which is feeding into part of this ESG revolution, okay? And you, all parts of the food chain need to be clean. And that's, that's a very important part, point for you to make about what you know you may be maybe hauled over the coals for in the future. So you're saying it has been addressed, Give the government a chance to uh, rectify if there's anything outstanding. But as far as you're concerned, there's nothing to discourage large funds to invest in you at some point in the future. We, one of the first institutional investors to invest in our company was actually Fidelity. And uh, uh, that was one of the things we had to do. We had to provide them with an ESG report, um, top to bottom, uh, about everything uh, we're doing as a, on a project level and a company level. So yes, we've already addressed that. But, but the ESG stuff is, you know, there's a lot of companies talk about it and it's essentially a sort of light greenwash. We, we, we've got ESG to our core, right down to, you know, training young um, uh, female Angolans into STEM, right the way through to um, ESG, greenhouse gas emissions with scope one, scope two and scope three compliant. Um, you know, we're working away all the way through. We're about to make a... Uh, um, a director appointment to cover that area where we've actually employed somebody whose sole job will be to drive ESG. So, yes, you'll see on every single mining company presentation map there'll be a slide on ESG. I think the difference is is um, who's actually walking the walk rather than talking the talk. Well, it's true, but it's it's more important for companies in your space more than ever. I mean, most mining companies they say have a page on it and they tip the hat towards it and they. You know, fund schools drill, drill water wells, or whatever it is that they do. But you, your whole entire food chain must deliver for sure. And look, and we'll get we'll we'll get into that, um, um, of course. Can you just talk to me um, a little bit about the move to go to the LSE main market? What was that? Why did well, you do that? Well, it's primarily to target the ESG funds. Um, 
you know, there's $47 trillion gone into those ESG funds. And we've looked very hard at the uh, uh, EU taxonomy on sustainable investments. And our view is it won't be just e, um, ESG funds that have to follow that taxonomy. It'll be a bit like a MIFID two. Every fund will have to follow it. So we're now gearing ourselves up to meet the sustainability index requirements for the EU taxonomy so that we are um, an acceptable investment, a, a, a target investment for ESG and the generalist funds who have to go down that track. And one of the areas we're doing that is through third party validation. So we've started the process of um, applying for the LSE's green mark. I think you're familiar with um, there are certain companies listed on the London Stock Exchange that meet this. Well, we think it's it's uh, one of the one advantages of the EU taxonomy is they recognize that mining is essential for the green energy transition. Energy transition is very metal intensive. And there's a lot of series of critical metals, not least of which the magnet metals. Um, but they recognize also for, for metal mining, not, not um, fossil fuel mining, metal mining, this can actually be very, very low carbon intensity. So in actual fact, mining scores quite highly in the sustainability index for the under the EU taxonomy. So we're going to those ESG funds and saying, look, you want leverage to electric vehicles or offshore wind turbines. We've got the metal that supplies them. And by the way, we score very, very highly on the EU taxonomy sustainability index. And by the way, here's an LSE green mark, et cetera. So that's our reason for coming to London is to present ourselves to that audience. Okay. But but I want to get I want to come get to the meat of this. Okay, all all of that is by comparison window dressing compared to what have you got in the ground, and because even even with your EPC partner, they don't really care about what's in the ground. They just want to be paid for building building the plant, right? You this is you've, I want you to show me what you know about what you've got in the ground, and what you think that's going to you know uh, excite the market. Why that's going to excite the market because. Um, at the moment, I haven't seen too much conversation about that. I've seen lots of market conversation. I've seen lots of, you know, chat about uh, everything else but what's under the ground. So what have you got? Well, we've got a very, very large deposit um, and it's sitting on the surface and it's right next door to um, some amazing infrastructure. So that's our that's our diff point of differentiation. The uh, drill program is complete. The assay results are coming through. And we'll have an upgraded uh, mineral resource estimate out in the middle of September. But basically, it'll give us a 15 to 20 years mine life to start off with, which is plenty, as you know, for, for financing. And we will produce around 16,000 tonnes of uh, mixed rare earth carbonate, which, sorry to bombard you with numbers, will will, will represent about 3,500 tonnes of NDPR oxide. And that will make us one of the major producers in the world. So just give you a comparison. Linus Corporation, which has a market cap of a billion US, produces around five and a half thousand tons of NDPR oxide. We're slightly smaller than that, sort of uh, three and a half thousand tons in a mixed rare earth carbonate. Interestingly, an American company, MP Minerals, the old mountain pass mine, which uh, I know you're familiar with, has just reversed itself into a SPAC in New York, and they're coming to market with a valuation of one and a half billion, and they're producing a little bit more than they're producing around 6,000 tons of uh, NDPR oxide. So in other words, you know, Linus and MP are setting the benchmark for the valuations at 
you know, there's 6,000, 5,000 tons of NDPR contained. We're, we're can, we think we're the next cab off the rank. We're, we've got a market cap of 40 million pounds, and yet we're coming with a BFS that will show production of around 3,500 tons. Yep. So we, we, what's exciting is if we get this right, we, we go from a junior with a market cap of 40, 40 million pounds, say 50 million US, into a valuation range which is going to be in 500 million US to a billion. That's the excitement. It, it is, but there's a bit more to it than that, right? The economics come into the you know the technical ability to extract the rare earth from the mineralogy comes into it, and you've got to do that all economically. So it's nice comparing yourself to those big companies, but they've they have a different set of problems from you. I'm trying to get at you know what do you know about what's on the ground? You've got a you've got a pre-feasibility study at the moment, right? So what? How do you move things forward? So the pre-feasibility study is you know, six, eight months old now. So we're halfway to a BFS. We've told everybody the BFS will be out in the middle of October, the revised resource assessment at the end of September. So I can't quote you any numbers in that future study, but I can tell you mm-hmm. that the things we have announced are we've got a very uh, high-grade NDPR-contained ore body, deeply weathered, sitting on the surface, the PFS showed that we could float that into a concentrate relatively straightforwardly. What we've subsequently come out and said, rather than produce a concentrate, we're going to add on another bit of circuit and we're going to produce a mixed rare earth carbonate. So the capital cost has gone uh, increased from around $130 million to around $200 million. Um, the cost, operating costs around that, well, obviously it's nothing we can discuss at this point because it's going to be in the study. But if you look at some... Um, Hastings Metals Tech as an ASX listing company. The, some of these numbers I'm throwing around with you now is, is um, uh, you know, we, we've got lower capex than them. We think our operating costs will be lower. Um, but that's the sort of scale of project you're looking at. The, the difference is between us and all the other competitors is we have this huge advantage is that instead of costing $500 million or more, we're $200 million and we have our we, we're, we're permitted, we have a presidential approval for our mining license, and we have our, uh, as we've just released our heads of agreement with the China Great Wall, and we have sovereign wealth and back, backing. So your question to every rare earth junior is, that's great, you've got a great project, all the rest of it, show me the finance, show me the permitting. Well, I'm showing you both for ours, and that's why we think we'll be first to market um, in terms of getting the next major rare earth mine into production. Okay. I do ask for those things, um, and I do try and understand the economics. So, but what interests me about what you just said is you've moved further downstream. Um, capex has obviously gone up, uh, 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 well, another fifty percent, but you know it's fine. It's two hundred million uh, capex, no big deal. Um, what was the consideration? What was the thought process to move downstream? Could you have moved further downstream? What were the? I think everybody does. It's it's interesting. It's a good question. I mean, it's it's the it's the key question. Why not stick at 135 million dollars and sell your concentrate like Mountain Passes at somewhere between 1,600 dollars a ton and 2,000 dollars a ton? That's that's a business. The difference is is if you're selling a concentrate, you've only got a few customers. If you're selling a carbonate, you've got a wide range of customers. You've got a lot of magnet producers in China. You've got the Japanese, the Koreans, and the um, and the Germans. So it's essentially a bigger market, and you're not dependent on on a, a one or two customers. And the second reason is is the value adds quite good. You know, you 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 put this extra capital in, extra operating costs, and instead of getting 
1,500, $2,000 a ton per ton of concentrate, you get somewhere, um, well, they're currently trading around two to $3,000 a ton, but that's for a very large, for 41% mixed rare earth carbonate, we'd be looking to produce a 75, 80%, so twice that. So you're looking, so you know, Hastings are talking about $8,000 a ton. So you're looking in that six to $8,000 a ton revenue range compared to one and a half to $2,000. So you can quickly see that we're, uh, trebling or quadrupling the revenue stream for a, as you pointed out, only a 50% increase in capital cost. And uh, obviously we haven't revealed the operating costs yet. We're still working through that, but it won't be a trebling of the operating costs. So you can see the EBITDA margin uh, should be much, much bigger and the markets are much bigger. And it's interesting, all rare earth companies seem to make this journey. Mountain Pass are just exactly that same thing. And, uh, they they started off selling this concentrate to China, and now they're going the whole uh, separation process, and they're now even talking about in their latest version going all the way through to magnets. And I think that what it is, Matt, is you go each step you go down the rare earth chain, you capture more value, and you know it's complex and difficult, but if you solve it, it's a very very good return on the extra capital employed. No, I understand that, but why stop? Here. And we, I, I'm just trying to understand the conversation that was going on at board level saying, okay, we're just going to move it slightly further downstream uh, and, th- and that's enough. That's, that's enough value for us. You know, you, you have a company a, that talks really, big. It's a really good question. And the, the, the answer is, is the step we're taking is with a relatively straightforward rotating kiln, we're putting a concentrate in it, we're going to bake it, we make it water soluble, we're going to extract um out of that a uh, pull out the uranium the thorium um, and produce a high grade uh a mixed rare earth carbonate and sell that to the next step and the next step is quite complicated it's called separation and that process is one i think is a step too far for us as a junior company um the the, the rotating kiln is just a kiln that's no different than the ones they have in the mineral, mineral sands industry most junior mine most mining companies are comfortable with that but the moment you go to the next step you need specialized um bucket chemistry style um, rare earth processing capabilities we don't have that and we don't prepare, profess to have it others do so we're happy to be a supplier to those that have it we think this is the limit of our of our um, journey down downstream. It's the limit of our value adding journey. Okay, I used a phrase earlier, window dressing, and do you understand what I mean by that? Because the market is is valuing it at forty million bucks, which is nothing compared to the story you're telling, right? So, what what is it you think the market is wanting to hear from you? Is does it need more substance in terms of what's under the ground? Do you think they're going to have to wait until the bankable feasibility study to see that? Or do you just think no one really isn't that interested in rare earths? Well, I think they are interested in rare earths. To take the last part first, the stocks trebled 300%. We're one of the best performing post-COVID stocks. We've now completely washed out the day traders from Australia. We've got 50 holders now who own 78% of the stock. As we indicated in the presentation, those insiders are buying more. So the people who are buying the stock are the existing holders buying more? So that's a very good sign. So you you often ask people on your show who's going to buy your stock. Well, I can tell you, people like me, the existing existing owners of this company are buying more. 
The bit where I think it captures people's imagination is we do need that third party validation of everything I'm telling you. And that comes out in the bankable feasibility study. And if the bankable feasibility comes out and says, here's a set of numbers, here's the new resource estimate, here's the marketing studies, and here's a report from Ross Skills that says, this is you know, our future view on the, on the, on the uh, future carbonate prices, then investors can look at that and say, wow, I can now get my head around these numbers. They've got third party validation. They've got uh, very strong shareholders buying more. I can, I can now take a, um, a reasonable investment step. So the moment there's risk between now and then, you know, we, you know, we, 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 we don't have that study. So people are buying the stock now, are looking at the existing information and projecting where we are now into a position in the future. The BFS, as you know, is an economic study or come out and say, this is what the economics look like. And it's third party validated. So I think that's the that's the big milestone. But it's but it's uh, you've traveled, which is great, but it's from a low base to a low base. I'm trying to get at what do you think the market needs to hear? Because rare earth companies, I think there's some great rare earth companies out there and there's, you know, look at all the macro numbers. It's fantastic, right? You, you, people should be excited about the, the deficit, the macro story, the supply demand story, but you're still a small company. So again, it come back to the question, the BFS will say so much, right? But what is it that you think the market as a whole needs to understand about rare earths before they start actually putting their money where their mouth is? It's a really good question. I think um, I think it's the dilemma for all unloved companies who are out there who aren't in the gold sector. I mean, gold companies get a free kick at the moment. They they just have to mention the word gold and and away they go. Um, so we have to do a little bit of education in the market and bring people to. Um, to up to speed. I mean, one area that I don't think people fully appreciate is, you know, this offshore wind turbine thing. The North Sea Wind offshore wind power hub is the biggest uh, energy installation on the planet. It's six times bigger than the China's Three Gorges Dam, and on its own, it's going to drive demand for a rare earths by fifteen hundred percent. Well, new five new rare earth mines just to power that. So when people can relate it to something they're familiar with then I think they can, they can see it. But I think the real, the real driver will be, and it's always the same, you know this better than anybody else, is when the neodymium and praseodymium metal prices start to run, we will go, we will, we will run as well. And, and then if you look at it on a day, I watch it on a daily basis, it's getting quite interesting because it's starting to run. It's just, everything we're talking about now translates into people needing to buy more of that metal. So that metal price starts to run. That is the ultimate third-party validation of what we're talking about. And people buy the stock. The reason why you buy gold stocks and not gold is because the stocks run harder than the underlying metal. So you get leverage on the underlying metal. So people go, okay, I can see these rare earth metal prices are going to run. Which, which London's main board listed stock have I got I can own easily to get myself leveraged to this stuff because I know it's going to take off. So I think in answer to your question is get the BFS, get an audience for, get people aware of who we are and what we do. And then the, the insiders will keep buying more and more and more. And then one day people will work out that, wow, there really is a shortage in these metals. Metal starts to run, our stock will take off. It's an interesting point there. 
Because I think tradition, and we, we've funded uh, rare earths companies in the past, but we were always very nervous about doing it because the erratic nature of the price. You know, the, it would be shoot up, you get a good, good year, maybe a good two years if you're lucky, and shoot straight back down again. There was no consistency to it. Do you believe going forward that these supply-demand charts are going to create a much more stable environment for rare earths going forward? Well, the previous run, as you know, was caused by a trade dispute between Japan and China. And basically, there was a, a shipping incident and the, the, the Chinese threatened, they didn't do it, threatened to uh, switch off the tap for rare earth. And the rare earth prices went through the roof. This is more fundamental. We're talking about a fundamental shortage, a structural shortage. In fact, uh, there's a guy from Adamus Intelligence who follows it very closely. He issues a warning. He says it's a warning. There is a going to be a shortage. So we talk to the auto manufacturers and i think you'll see exactly as you've seen in cobalt not lithium cobalt i think you'll see magnet metal metals as people start to look at the provenance of the metal supply chain for evs and certainly wind turbines i think you're going to see um, some of these big uh, oems starting to move into this space to to be absolutely sure so people talk about the China thing. I don't think it's the China thing. I think it's a supply thing, a supply province thing. And I, I, I'm aware that people are already looking at this space right now. There is no substitute for permanent magnets for offshore wind turbines. You're not, you can't put an induction motor up there in a gearbox. It doesn't work. You need seven tons of permanent magnets. So if you're going to put a thousand square kilometers of these wind turbines up there, you got to be sure you are able to get the metal for those magnets. So those conversations are starting to be had now. And in fact, you know, I, I'm, the European Union is actually ahead of the curve on this. They've actually flagged critical raw materials and saying, hey, guys, if we're going to meet our sustainability targets, we're going to meet our 2030, 2050, we're going to meet all, everything we're talking about under the Green New Deal. We better start having a look at the metals to get us there because they're on the critical list. So those conversations are starting to be had. Okay, so, th so that's on the macro side of things for you and everyone else in this space, there's a lot of conversation going on. Can I ask you one last question, if I may, Paul, with regards to the BFS, um, who's putting that together and what makes them qualified? Have they worked in the rare earth space or are these just generalists? Um, Wood Group, the team from Wood Group um, claim, and they will, they will argue it with you, that they are the world's leaders in rare earth processing. So the team, the metallurgists, the engineers, they will they will argue that they are right up there uh, amongst the very, very best. So we're assembling the best credentialed uh, metallurgists. So it's led by uh, Dave Hammond, our geologist, ex-peak resources. So it's a, it's a world-class team with uh, world-class geologists, mining engineers, process engineers. Um, and I don't think um, there will be any shadow of a doubt. It will be a very, very high quality document. Okay. Well, I guess we'll have to look up the team and see, check their background out. And, and, and so actually, I just spotted another one, which I, I meant to ask you. You use wonderful language in your press releases. You say that you will use up to 85% debt pa uh, package when you, when you get there. So up to, as, as if that's in your control. Do you feel it is in your control? Um, we're trying to, the reason for that wording was the SOE funding is, is typically 85% and it does have a ten, tenor of uh, eight to 10 years. Um, and it does have that sign assure guarantee. So we just said rather than put an absolute number in there because we don't know where we'll end up. 
we we believe it will be operating. What we're trying to flag for people is it's not private equity style finance, it's not project finance, it is Chinese commercial SOE style funding that is what we're looking at. So you're going to have to fund at least 30 million yourself, is that right? Yes, yes. And then I think there's a... What's your market cap? What's your market cap? 40 million, right. 40 million pounds. Yeah, but, but you, you talk as if that's a, an impediment. It's actually weird slightly the other way. Smaller companies have difficulty bringing in big institutions because there's no no capacity. If I went around town tomorrow and said I need 30 million, it's relatively straightforward. So the issue for us is to make sure the share price is orders of magnitude higher than it is now. So existing shareholders get rewarded uh, along the way. Um, and, and you know, to, to give me a sense of it, Matt, and, and I know I know you're familiar with the sector. It's a bit like everything to do with rare earths is the opposite of gold. You know, if you go into a room of 100 investors, 99 of them are like gold, one won't. Well, it's the opposite for rare earths. You know, there's there's 99 people in the room. There's only one that likes rare earths, and you're you're practically the only person who'll talk to me, Matt. Um, but often, as you know, that one person who backs you. It almost the contrarian, they're the ones who make the the multiple return. So we're saying to people, yeah, it's not on your radio screen right now, but have a look at the macro trends. Show me how many mines are in construction around the world. Look at the valuation that MP mineral materials are getting in New York. These are big, big numbers. Um, they're much better than the gold sector and much better returns in the gold sector. But you know, you've got to be that one in a hundred who wants to make that bet. Um, uh, that, that's currently where we sit. Okay. So we appreciate we appreciate appreciate you, your 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 you know your comments. Um, but it will change. And then, as I say, as the metal price starts to take off, more and more people start to look at it, and then it uh, becomes more more acceptable to invest. I agree with everything you've just said. Um, I think with eighty five percent debt funding, it becomes an easier conversation than if it was 60, 40, 70, 30 debt for sure. So I think that is in your favor. I'm intrigued by what the cost of that money is going to be to you and your shareholders. And, you know, I, I guess as you move towards the point where you're starting to have those conversations, you'll, you'll let us know. We will. Look, very much look for, well, I think you'd have to admit that we've done rather well with our funding to date. You know, we, we pull, we're working very closely with the, the Angolan Sovereign Wealth Fund, which has been Every issue we've done, been, done has been at a premium to the one before. So we've added value to existing shareholders. We've gone out, brought on this. Uh, demonstrably, we've demonstrated how we're going to do the main funding. And as you're flagging, we've got um, a funding gap of around 30, 30 to 50 million US. Well, I think given our trade record, you have to say we can safely put that away at a, at a, at a very good cost. And, uh, and we're very focused on um, on. Uh, you know, share price and sh existing shareholder returns. I, just one final thing is, there's a, you know, you, I know you're a student of economics, but there's the, everyone talks about Buffett and uh, lots of, there's a guy called um, Singleton and he ran the most, one of the most successful American corporations for about 30 years. And he did it by treasuring his equity. You know, he treasured every single share and he never issued shares unless the share price was very, very high. And when he had the opportunities, he bought back his, his, his existing shares. So we're saying to you, we've done a share consolidation. We are very miserly in terms of how we issue our shares in the company. 
everything we do is focused on generating return on a per share basis. So um, uh, we 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 um, we hope to come back to you with a significantly higher price than it is today and continue to demonstrate that uh, that philosophy. Good man, Paul. Great story. Well done moving things forward. Um, genuinely, pick up that phone. Let us know. Um, you know, when things are starting to move uh, at pace. When's the delivery of the BFS? We've got the um, mineral resource estimate in September, which is a big milestone. And then the BFS is the middle of October. Great. So Good. maybe we do both of those and give you give you progress. Um, and you should buy some shares now, and then you can see how much money I'm going to make you along the way. Thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed the interview, why not subscribe to Cruxcast? or our website, cruxinvestor.com, and of course, our YouTube channel, Crux Investor. Plus, you can catch us most days on Twitter and LinkedIn. We really love getting your feedback, so please keep it coming, and we'll speak to you again soon.